certainly so. Um, I'm a 25-year allocator of fraud uh, pension funds and endowment foundation, and also has had roles as a GP uh, and a Melty. And uh, leaving a company I co-founded, Williams Capital, which today is the largest funded minority of Berkshire Investment Bank. I left after 16 years. My colleagues kindly uh, achieved that status uh, three years after my exit. Um, I left to focus on climate tech, FinTech, and wealth management. I'm an institutional guy trained in uh, private equity mill market and saw the capital stack merging uh, 10 years ago as a all of these years. Some of you are native and sound down space, and I've learned a lot from many of you in this room. Um, I saw the capital stack moving to asset slash wealth management, so I left to focus more on uh, wealth management and seat at the Episcopal Church Endowment Foundation. Million, uh, doubled the assets in five years doing nothing sexy, uh, just they couldn't afford someone to do what I did. I'm sure all of you would have had that opportunity to do the same thing, but it put me squarely in the wealth management space. And I concurrently uh, had a political appointment at New York State Common Retirement Fund overseeing their sustainability and climate portfolio. So for me, it was so, such a privilege to be uh, in the asset management world from a, a large pension fund space and in the family office space endowment foundation and be able to focus on uh, mission investments with 100% financial returns uh, and social impact. So going down that curve of financial returns and social impact depending on what the uh, stakeholder uh, thought in terms of additional returns and how that was measured. And I always use the UNPRI goals. The New York State Common Retirement Fund follows nine of 17. I speak to high net worth individuals and family offices who have not done it before. I say, let's start with one uh, and let's talk about how we're going to measure that and uh, monitor that and put staff we need involved. Uh, so it's been a lot of fun. Um, in my exit, and, and uh, Climate Week was amazing. I think I heard someone here uh, so, think so about... Give problems. all those hats. Yes. What, 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 what's exciting you and scaring you in this? What's exciting me is uh, the broad conversation globally. Uh, honestly, nothing scaring me, but what, what, I, what I replace that word is what, what I'm spending more time on making sure I'm on top of. Uh, and I think you guys set a panel on it, is AI. Uh, AI and climate tech has, has really transformed, uh, uh, frankly, uh, nature-based uh, carbon credit solutions and other types of nature solutions given the, the drone application and collecting data. So AI is in emerging technologies is what I'm coming up to speed on and speaking to individuals that know significantly more than I uh, and how uh, it is placed role. So, Honestly, I mean, it's really interesting to see what's done Island. It's uh, pretty virgin in the sense that a lot has been done up there. And uh, I'm very happy. I, I just spoke to Good Morning Zanzibar, and Mark saw that I was in Zanzibar in the conference. And 
and I was there with my family, you know, my brother, my siblings, and my sister was full of big body, body of this. And when I said I'm going to a conference, they said, I'm a conference of standards. <laughs> 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 they couldn't believe it. Um, but I, I, I went there for two hours, and I was very lucky to go at the right time, because they were talking about um, smart cities, and then I got a chance to see exactly what they had achieved in terms of really building smart cities, sports centers, and everything else, and bringing universities into Zanzibar. So the, uh, the MIT of India, which is IIT, has moved to Zanzibar. And uh, then um, it's a Princeton University building an economic department. And it's really heartening to see that, because then the rest of Africa Right? They don't have to fly all the way to Europe or come all the way to the U.S. They have access to that education and to a nice lifestyle, clean space, everything in Zanzibar and close to home. Um, you know, my family lives in Dubai, and my cousins are growing up in Dubai, and instead of coming to the U.S., they're actually studying in the UAE now, I'm doing medicine or, or whatever. And the UAE government is giving them golden visas because they really don't want them to leave. Uh, and these are like 20 year olds. Um, so I, I go around the world because I like to see best practices in terms of, you know, you know, at the end of the day, we try to get all this together and to see how we can add value uh, to the world because we need the knowledge to be able to add. And when I was in Europe, what I really love seeing over there is people aren't greedy. Uh, you know, they're very happy with what they have. I <laughs> a lot of green technology, windmills um, you know, and solar technology. And because they're later on, they're, they're late in coming into this, I think they can adopt the best practices. Um, so that was really interesting. And in terms of philanthropy, um, I'm involved with community access. Um, and what I love about community access is they build new clean buildings and um, you know, helping people with mental health and homelessness. And so when you live in one of those apartments, you, you, your mental health problems disappear. Because it's a beautiful, clean, sunny space. And you get to bring your family there. So there are a lot of women who've been single mothers, homeless, whatever, have had access to housing and skill sets and community gardens. And uh, and then I'm also on the executive board of working nation, which is upscaling job skills and all of that. So that's a little bit in a nutshell on what I'm interested in. <laughs> so then why 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 do you think portfolio will be clean second? You talked about earlier. Maybe it's a certain segment that well, obviously, the IRAs drive some of the tech shifts or other Yeah, I mean, um, I talked, obviously, talked a little bit about nuclear, talked about um, kind of building really around the new, we talked about retrofitting, like some old technology into old I think it was very interesting. Um, so, the other area that we haven't, that I haven't really talked about that I think is sort of the clean world. And I think you, Stephen, mentioned this earlier, right? You sort of see China hopefully cross. And we're at this point where a lot of these minerals that people looked at as, you know, what needed to do with clean tech, 
um, you know, prices have gone down, right? There was a lot of excitement in exuberance in kind of the prices of copper, rare earth, silicon metals, um, cobalt, lithium a year and a half ago. And I think we've seen that come down because at the end of the day, it is still industrial demand to drive these, um, you know, the prices of metals and, you know, basically low prices of supply demand. So I think that's one area where we are excited because I think if we look two years out, and it's not all, right? We look at lithium and there's probably a few I look at lithium and I think there's huge supply that can happen. So I'm not excited about that. But I think something like silicon metal is somewhere, um, you know, where we are high allocating capital. Yeah, uranium. Um, yeah, uranium. We started to see uranium here. Um, but I think copper? Um, copper too is another one. So copper and silicon metal are really the two So, one, we look at copper and we think there's a scarcity of you know, incremental supply. We think some of the things put a mine online is going to take a really long time. And we think, obviously, electrification, electric vehicles drive demand there. Um, and silicon metals is the other one just because, you know, again, what you're seeing with a lot of the onshoring is a need for. Um, you know, supply needed to a particular nation. So, yeah, Silicon Metals, for example, we're, we're in a company that's basically that has two-thirds of, of U.S. supply of the metal. Uh, we look at solar and we think in four years, the amount of solar that's going to come on the market is basically going to take something like two-thirds of U.S. supply. And so we think that drives up. And, and again, that's, that's aside from all of the industrial demand you know, I think about the chip that it goes into. And so, you know, we think that drives prices up, and we think this is the way to play it um, because a lot of that supply is, is effectively being kind of isolated to the nation, um, you know, that that, that that needs it. And so, you know, I think that's another area where we think um, we're finding great um, value just because China, because of China, right? Because this is either industrial metal today, and we think they're clean tech metal. Sorry, sorry, sorry. So, time at Wave Talk. What do you want me to talk about? I'm an old man. 
So I yeah. think that I'll talk interrupt but to get a question you can ask both and ask. What I see uh, sort of look at things pretty quickly. And what do I think this room have a responsibility to look at it more ways than we know how and really challenge ourselves. Uh, part of the utility from the solar of the press because of the interest rate differential you can get four to six percent risk free. So the utility next year is at an unprecedented thirty percent fall down. It's not because they're the largest not not because they're the largest free energy provider in the United States. So why am I saying this? Because often what we're getting is far more complex than what one might think of the obvious like something's moving in a certain direction. So a bit of an eye-genesis just to provoke you. Uh, I'm from South Africa. I'm the son of a mining analyst that worked at Old Mutual, Boston, Janet, and uh, So going forward, uh, maybe 10 years ago, I, thought I got involved and was one of the first four people to work for a guy, not work but help to amplify them, he said, I want to eradicate poverty, and had the support of uh, Grover 5, which is now been acquired by Accenture as their advertising. And so we scaled that with the support of Gates Foundation Bank. To uh, an organization which is raised through corporate and government bodies, tens of billions of dollars that have gone to actual ground use change to eradicate poverty in various ways. One of the, the events to publicize and make it viable was to do a concert in Central Park, the last of which was uh, late September, where you've got 80,000 people at free concerts and then a few paid slaves for tickets. You get a AAA list of performers and interspersed with politicians talking. And Hugh Evans, who's the CEO and co founder, would provoke and ask. And he went from being kind of just a kid that a uh, friend of prime minister and had a British law degree to hanging out with heads of state and heads of corporate and really building a viable company with 400 employees. As, as a non-profit, but really an advocacy organization. By being there, I met a lot of people globally that are tied into what you might call and what's become populist, which is reunification of the world, and so on and so on and so on. Separate from that, my son has worked uh, only a couple of places, but he has three degrees in the last place he studied in Russia, so his first job was with gas property ASF. Which really never happened because they joined venture in 14 years ago. And so he then got a job with a company called Kellia, uh, which is an uh, energy grid operator of public And so he, being a, a German kind of snail corporate company, evolved through the ranks. And so I've seen how they have greenified a lot of the energy they buy in. But I also saw the fall of Unifer because the gas line was suddenly cut over so they had gas coming cheap from Russia. Suddenly it wasn't cheap. So the capital table was ballistic and the company collapsed. Unifer 
which was a publicly traded pension company, the German government bought 80% of the company to keep it solvent for lifelong years. Interesting company, the company of us. My thoughts on what you've heard. So the final thought from a view is in my view, um, carbon. One of the areas that I'm focused on is the carbon credit, a nuanced market today, played by uh, all of the greenwashing issues. Charlatans. Charlatans. Uh, played by charlatans and <laughs> all of the, that's a better word, and greenwashing. The good news uh, is that there were many technologies, not just the company kind of I think there are more, uh, that have addressed uh, the trust layer uh, that's missing uh, with the use of emerging technology, uh, and that is inclusive of AI. There's nature-based carbon credits, there's engineered carbon credits, nature-based in the forest and the biodiversity and all those wonderful things. Today, they're not scalable. Engineering carbon credits are scalable. I have to focus on engineering because I don't have much time left having so companies, and that's what's scalable. Good news is that AI will help nature based activities scalable. But the bottom line is who can we really trust? And blockchain based carbon credits with the right structure, uh, with the right credit agents, you're screening out credits, creating carbon credits, these are the ones. Our team layered on uh, one of the big four because I said I'm Googling C0. So, guys, we need one of the big four. So, we need to Delta Deloitte and HPG came in, just one of the three. I'm not here to advertise any one, but my point is having independent third party verification, in our case, times three, available to anyone with a computer anywhere in the world that is on the blockchain, in our case, Polygon, but there are others, is the trust layer that's missing. And I won't go into the emerging technology in terms of being used, the drones, and all the good stuff, but that's going by the back. you mind coming? On the numbers, think about the carbon credit market. That would be uh, my question. And, um, and please excuse me and thank you so much for letting me come today. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Question with regards to ECU, the ESG trends, uh, yeah. there's a bit, been a bit, a big sell off you know, of late and yeah. a lot of pushback, showing that the returns don't actually need it. And, Especially in a high institute environment, a lot of the hedge funds are very bullish um, on, on their positions of these big trails and shorts. How do they, how do they see that affecting them? Yeah, I mean, very bluntly, I'll say we're just focused on really things. Um, and we think the combination of So I'm not, you know, best equipped to talk about kind of ESG standards. From my perspective, I think it's really, you know, what are the businesses we like, what clients we think. Um, you know, from this area, and the public market exactly some of those companies. Um, so I think one would, would think that 
I think the problem they had is you can do it in the private space because you're looking at one company and you can track the company all the way through. If you're BlackRock and you're trying to do no no offense to what's managed in the world, you can think about all the companies they own and all the subsidiaries of the company, but those companies own and all the vendors that they use. How do you how do you track to make sure you're hitting all the you know, not having those things? So we never we actually didn't think it was very practical in the public markets to say you can assure what your ESG standards are when there really weren't that great standards to begin with. Um, in the private markets, it's much easier to look at a company and follow through. So I think it will lead into it through best practices of the private space coming into public markets. But I think to advertise it as a public market manager saying you know that you can guarantee that you're, you're committing to the standards is very difficult. So we didn't, that's part of the reason why we didn't go that way. The other thing is, as a Philosophical defense for ARS. We always believe that make money for clients, let them choose how to how to use it. Um, is was really our, our bias <clears throat> because of those two things coming together. I think he's expecting to keep going. No, no, no. no. He's, 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 he's trying to. Uh, ask, I'm asking Peter if he'd like to chime in on, on the As you do, maybe just introduce yourself a bit. Sure. Uh, quickly, uh, top uh, single family office, the top single family office, we best for social justice, marriage and racial wealth gap, climate solutions, and energy transition, manage a portfolio public security and uh, fund interest. We don't really invest directly, although we're about to do our fourth direct investment. <laughs> Never say never. That's because two of those companies are relevant. So I'm happy. Um, one of the things I, I wanted to actually mention is we're going through this sort of polarized time around uh, anti woke initiatives. I think something like 22 or 50 states have attorney general that are promulgating. Impediments to investing through with the use of ESG data, simply even reviewing it. And you know, I find it kind of being a 25, 30 year Wall Street guy. I'm just our first, we're first generation of Wall Street families. I'm a Wall Street guy, I ran a hedge fund, sold an asset manager. So, you know, the idea that uh, uh, elected or appointed officials would tell people that they can't use data in making and evaluating to some kind of anti-democratic, anti-democratic, um, so it just runs completely the wrong way, particularly since elected officials, uh, state attorneys general, are not fiduciaries in the true sense. They don't have an obligation by law to look out 
the best interests of people. That's the reason that they're giving them. They're saying that they, they're minding the people because the and it got defied by that because it's saying that the ESA data is fake, false, not fraudulent, but fake, false, and deceptive. And came from some of the firms <coughs> like BlackRock, I'm not making a comment about BlackRock, <coughs> that aggregators promoted baskets of public equities, for example, gave them a title. They were not necessarily distinguishable from traditional ETFs and decided that, you know, capital is So you had Microsoft and Google and that, and those were the, the top um, ETF constituents within the ETF. Then they had to retro-engineer and justify why I'm just using Microsoft was ESG. And then if you take those UN principles and any other third-party way of dissecting it, you're forcing yourself to pick a box because, you know, and then you talk about gender equality, race, geography, carbon emissions, you go to list how you treat the people. And it's, you know, trying to fit into the box rather than saying what's inside the box. And I think that's but why... I, but I, as an investor, I should make the decision if I want to invest with video. Fair rather than having an attorney general. That's why they did it. And I'm not defending it. I'm just saying. But they're saying the public are not in a position to know and that the big asset managers are leaving. However, however, the big asset managers are fiduciaries of that money. So their decisions are actionable in a court of law. So what what we're seeing is this weird intermediation where lawmakers without an obligation to us are trying to limit our ability to look at data. And right. professionals who are true fiduciaries and act where it's actionable, actionable, are being told by attorneys that don't really know anything about markets. You can't consider this. When in fact, all the SGA data is is data you can choose to look at or not. So whether or not a product is, is fallacious, and I would agree with case, right? I totally agree with that. That's the second component that I agree with you on. Well, you know, if you think about it, 90 years ago when the SEC uh, was formed and they, you know, the SEC was created to help foment the capital markets and drive capital formation, that shareholders and 90 years ago, they said, hey, you know, public companies, you guys should produce audited financials and the same sort of uproar occurred as we're seeing now with the SG data. That's it's too expensive, it's not uniform, how do we look at different companies? It's sort of the same messiness that we saw 90 years ago. Here we are 90 years later, and the SEC thinks it's, hey, you know, companies, you should produce this data. It's kind of like, you know, the 15-year-old gets told by, uh, by uh, a skin doctor, I'm going to give you medicine, your acne is going to get worse before it gets better. We're kind of in a messy time, but it's going to and we're in this place where I really think that professional investors need to uh, tell government that this is not okay. We don't want you waiting in and limiting our rights to make dumb decisions with money. That's up to me to make a dumb decision with money. Here, here, here. I don't think you brought this up in the scope of things. Does it get better after sort of a presidential election? Or how do you think this plays out? I mean, we're, 
Well, what I'm seeing, what, what I'm seeing, and what I'm hearing from people involved, there's a nonprofit called Ceres, C-E-R-E-S. Like they're really involved in this, what they call the Freedom to Invest movement. And what I'm, what they're seeing is that there's becoming sort of bloom coming off the rose on the Santa world sentiment that because there's this huge disconnect that, you know, the majority of public asset managers and money, the majority of shareholders and people, you don't use the ESG and acronym and you say, you say to anybody, would it be a bad thing if a company covered up lawsuits around environmental damage or social uh, or the yeah, social injustice, like the wage gap between men and women. And all people will say, you know, 65% of people are in favor of all the things related to public companies providing data, what they, when you put the ESG moniker in it, because, uh, pardon this chocolate expression, but evil is really good at marketing, um, you'll have, oh, well, ESG is a bad thing, right? ESG is a bad thing. So, um, if you talk about businesses being um, uh, being transparent around environmental, social, and governance, what you hear from 65, 70% of people polled is their favor of that. When you see this GF, it's used around 
really have no regard for it because we're making money by what it means. So I, I personally think that the projection continues of 800 billion between New York, Calpers, and Calpers of uh, carbon, black oil, and energy stocks is the coding, and maybe they're trying to make a point. Right? Um, and I'm not talking back from a performance point of view, because they're liberal sentiment liberal. that all of those funds don't overweight a particular thing. They try and be everywhere. Try and be and, and they try to be very simplistic about how they do right. that. But I used to work at GE Capital. Right. His but, brother was a GE too. But that's draconian. And, and, and I can tell you that we spent a lot of time trying to see how we can make coal cleaner, oil cleaner, all of that in terms of technology. Right. Um, so I think I think it's a lot more complex than looking at it as a simplistic now. I'm saying we're not going to own Shell or Exxon. And I it's, it's, it's wrong. You really can't move or function without those... I mean, those companies are making an effort to also become more green and, and more green economic. And they, they have the capital to make it happen. Right? But I would say that is, yeah. like, and it's the same thing about, like, investors should have the right to be stupid. If an investor <laughs> says, I don't want a weapons manufacturer in my portfolio, he doesn't buy it with my personal perspectives on the world, I don't want to invest in possibilities like that, so that should be a choice. Sure. And ESG actually is not a investing strategy. It's not like you're either. It's just like data that you can evaluate. It, you know, you're either growth or your momentum or your deep value. And and ESG is just another data tool in the toolkit to evaluate. You can decide. I'm not going to look at that, but it isn't actually the basis for how you make a decision. So we'll make a decision as a stock cheaper rich on intrinsic basis. Top quartile ESG companies, cheaper, rich on intrinsic basis, or events that unlock value. Yeah, but you know, you're not investing in ESG because the company is a top quartile ESG company. What's what is profoundly overpriced, right? Like, uh, is, why you're not going to? That's not the reason. You, still you might short it. You might short it, but then that's because that's a value trade. You're, you're making a judgment that it's rich on. Personally, I agree. That's how I would. And there actually are some ESG going short funds. Well, and a lot of them. And there's a non-ESG ETF that's offered that raised above the dollar. But a lot of a lot of funds, like it was probably four years ago. So you had, you know, I'm going to short funds, and those funds were totally under a chaos, right? And if you get after that chaos, you got through to some moderate. And ironically, same there, the quality of the you know, the energy company was much lower than most everything else, doing some exceptional tech stocks. Some of them were down at one and a half, and then they're now trading at 50. I'm looking at them, I think the average is maybe 4.5. This is black oil, oil and gas. Um, I don't think. Oh, can I, can I just say something on a lightning note? 360, one of the best best firms to start. Oh, that's <laughs> 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 because it's 360. <laughs> it's also one in Warsaw. 